Mystics are simply people who live with the awareness of God's grace in their life, and they're constantly trying to respond to it. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thanks, James. Welcome to another edition of Heath in Pursuit. I'm Heath Hollinsby, and I will be your host over the next hour or so, as we have a really great conversation with um, Albert Haas. And he is a, he's from New Orleans, uh, but it's very French, you know, the, the French name. It's, it's actually spelt Albert, but Albert. And, uh, and he wrote a book that is one of my favorites of 2019 called Becoming an Ordinary Mystic. And then the subtitle is Spirituality for the Rest of Us. And um, Brian Zond talks about how the future of Christianity is going to survive based off more mysticism being involved in it. And, uh, and so this book was just a really refreshing introduction to what that lifestyle looks like. And I thought, I need to have this guy on and talk to him about some of the things that he presented because um, it shook me a bit. And I think it'll do the same for you. And so, uh, Albert, thanks for being with us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. He's happy to be here. And I was just telling you offline, kind of my journey into maybe this, of seeing mysticism is a lot more beautiful and a lot less threatening than it's been presented to me uh, throughout my history. And so, how would you sum up mysticism, and why do you think that in evangelicalism it gets a bad rap? I don't think you have to um, go and say, you know, mysticism has gotten a bad rap in evangelicalism because it also has gotten a pretty bad rap in my Roman Catholic tradition. <laughs> you know, I, I think for, for I think for all for all Christians, we always have this tendency to think that the mystics are either the odd ducks, mm-hmm. you know, or that they have this very rare, unique grace um, that God has given to them and God hasn't shared that grace with the rest yeah, with of us, else, yeah. you know. And when you look at my, my doctorate is in the history of Christian spirituality. Hmm. And when you look at the history of Christian spirituality, the reality is that the people whom we traditionally call mystics, they really are just footnotes in yeah. the history of Christian spirituality. So they really don't, they really don't stand out except maybe there's a couple of them, you know, for instance, the 16th century John of the cross, mm-hmm. I would say has been a real power house in the history of Christian spirituality or the 16th century Teresa of Avila. She would be another one. But for the the vast majority of these mystics, they're all kind of like footnotes in the history of Christian spirituality. Hmm. And, And to me, I think what the essence of mysticism is, and when you look at these footnotes called the mystics, mystics are simply people who live with the awareness of God's grace 
in their life hmm. and they're constantly trying to respond to it. You know, one of the things, points that I make in becoming an ordinary mystic is simply the reality that, you know, I think every time, sometimes when I hear people talk about grace, they make it sound like it's some, some, some kind of, you know, divine liquid that yeah. God pours into our souls. And to me, what, what, Grace really is of its very essence. It simply is God's ardent longing and enthusiastic invitation to come to a deeper relationship with him. Hmm. And that's really what a mystical relationship is all about. It's trying to live and grow in the awareness that we're surrounded by God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. as a young kid growing up in Catholic school, I remember the nuns used to always say to us, Deus ubi est. God is everywhere. Hmm. God is everywhere. And that's true. And I think part of being a disciple of Jesus and part of being a mystical disciple is trying to deepen that awareness yeah. of God's presence that surrounds us like the air we breathe. Yep. You know, remember remember what St. Paul said when, when St. Paul was preaching at the Areopagus, as it's portrayed in the Acts of the Apostles, Paul even quotes from a pagan poem, and he says, in God we live, we move, we have our very being. Hmm. So we're surrounded by God, you know? Yep. It's, like, it's like as the mystic Catherine of C once said, you know, that as a fish is in the ocean and the ocean is in the fish, so are we in God. And wow. so the challenge for all of us, I think, is to grow in this awareness that you don't go and go somewhere to get God. You simply grow in the awareness that you already have God. Yeah. You know, it, yep. it's kind of like I always tell people that when it comes to spiritual formation, there's nothing to get. Hmm. We simply need to become aware of what we already have, you know? Yeah. It's like God, we already have God. And so and so I think that that's this whole process of becoming what I call an ordinary mystic is just trying to practice living in that presence of God that is always with us. Yeah. You know, um, as you're talking there, there was there was moments of your book just popping out my head. One of the things that I found really fascinating was, was this awareness, um, being open that God is everywhere, and it's very different than the approach of, uh, I, so I worked in a Presbyterian church for a while where they had a call to worship, and my, it always just slightly rubbed me the wrong way because I was like, this is not something you go and do, and then you you start at this time, and then you end an hour later, but but the call to worship is everywhere. I mean, it's in the it's in the rainfall. You know what I mean? It's it's not this prescription. Yeah, you, you know, in, in my in my Catholic tradition, we have this we have this pious practice, uh, this spiritual discipline that I always find a little bit goofy, and it's called practicing the presence of God. Well, you don't have to practice it because you're already, <laughs> we're already in it. We're surrounded by it. Yeah. And the question is, is to open up our eyes, open up 
our ears, open up our hearts so we can simply experience what yeah. we already have. There's nothing to get. We just need to become aware of what we already have. You know, Heath, let me tell you something. I always, I always love to tell people because I think it makes a good point. The great secret of spiritual formation is written on every automobile, and it's written on the on the passenger side rear view mirror at the very bottom. It says objects in mirror are closer than they appear, <laughs> and I always tell people scratch out the word objects and put God. You know, God is closer to us than God appears. Yeah, you know what's funny is um, one of the critiques that that was given to me when I was kind of wrestling through this a couple years ago, because I began to really believe that getting out in nature, I mean, I live in the Northwest. We are, we are a deeply spiritual people up here. I mean, people go out on Sundays and in beautiful days and hike because there's this sense of connection to something bigger, something more divine, something. And, and one of the things that was, that I was told when I was working in this church was like, that's that's heretical because the only way to God is through Jesus, and you can't get Jesus in nature. And I remember just, I couldn't reconcile that, and that's something that stuck with me. But I, I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about the mysticism is I'm just naturally wired to, to see beauty and to appreciate beauty. And it's in, you know, when I look at a mountain and I see the attributes of God, and that he's strong, and he's mighty, and he's huge, and then I look at a, you know, a leaf that is, just fragile and frail, and I see the character of God in that that frailty, and that He's tender and He's kind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. As a priest who's a, who's a member of the Franciscan Order, you know, this is one of the great insights of Francis of Assisi mm-hmm. that you can actually use nature as a ladder to come into the divine presence. That just by focusing and paying attention to this particular tree, and to remind myself that this particular tree that I'm standing in front of or this particular leaf that I'm holding in my hand this is a reflection of God. Yeah. You know, in my Franciscan tradition, uh, Saint Bonaventure, who was a, one of the great 13th century Franciscan theologians, he describes God as a, a fontalis plenitudo, a, a fountain fullness. Hmm. It, it's it's almost as if, from Bonaventure's perspective, God is like oh like oh geyser, you know, always erupting. And every eruption is one particular aspect of creation. Hmm. And so and so in my Franciscan tradition, we say that by by just by meditating on nature, you can follow it back to its very source, which is God constantly self-expressing himself, not only in creation, but, you know, also in each one of us. You know, I heard heard a a Presbyterian minister saying, I'm thinking, you know, he hit the nail on the head. He talked about how Jesus was the word of God. And at some specific moment in history, God decided to speak Jesus into existence. And then he said, and that's true for all of us, Hmm. that each one of us was a word in God's mind. And in my case, on April 7th, 1955, at 116 in the morning, (laughs) God decided to speak me into existence. Hmm. And so there's something, there's something about me being like God.
God, or to use the scriptural image, I'm made in the image and likeness of God. And so there's something God-like about me, but there's also something God-like in each individual tree, in each individual leaf, um, as you just just suggested. And I think this is really what, this is what Christian mysticism is all about. It's about living with this wonderful awareness that we're surrounded by the divine presence. I remember reading a tweet recently uh, from a buddy who said, you will not look into the eyes of somebody today who's not an image bearer. Mm. And, and really considering that every single person, the ones on different theological sides of the spectrum, politically, that, that those who we consider our enemies are still the Imago Dei. They're still oh, image bearers of the divine. You know what I- well, and you know, and you know what, Heath. On my good days, I remember that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but on most days, I don't. <laughs> Absolutely, no. I'm in the same boat. It's it's hard, you know. And there's some days where even my kids, I'm like, there's no way you guys are image bearers, but but it always pans out. Like, you know, like the it, and and when you actually approach life like that, then you then people are not consumable products to you. You actually, they're worthy of respect. They're worthy of dignity because they are the Imago Dei. You just hit a point that I really hope your listeners don't miss. And that is what you said, when you approach life like this, Hmm. and I just want to piggyback on that and say, you know, to grow in this mystical awareness does not happen by osmosis. Hmm. You have to be willing to work at it. Because I think sometimes, sometimes, you know, we all, we have, we have this tendency to think that as long as I'm going to church on Sunday and and maybe doing a little Bible reading every day, that somehow or another, I'm going to be growing spiritually. And, And we kind of think that by putting in time that somehow or another I will grow in my spirit of discipleship yep. uh, just by putting in time. And it doesn't quite happen that way. We have to also be deliberate about certain practices yes. that help to heighten our awareness of God's presence in our lives and what God is asking of us. You know, you're, that actually leads perfectly into the question that I was going to ask you next, that one of the takeaways from the book that I want that I feel like I got a healthy dose of, but I'd I'd love to hear from you is just like what does it look like day in and day out to be a mystic? Because one of the things I really appreciated, and I don't even know if you were super aware of what you were doing in writing that book, was there was these suggestions. It was a it was very sensory suggestions. It was the you know when you do prayer, sit like this and position yourself like this, and and so it wasn't just an intellectual approach to theology, but it was a a sensory experiment um, in, in various attributes of life. So I'm kind of curious of what is a day-to-day, what's it look like day in and day out to, to be a mystic? Well, you're going to be kind of disappointed. You're going to be really <laughs> disappointed in this answer. But let, let, let me, let me uh, answer with the way um, a Zen Buddhist monk once said it. Okay. And he said, you know, before I was enlightened, I simply would wash the dishes. Hmm. And now, after enlightenment, I simply wash the dishes. So <laughs> the point being, the point being that I 
mysticism is a lot more ordinary, I think, yeah. than we realize. An analogy, sometimes an analogy that I, I like to use is this. You know, you get on an elevator and there's always in the elevator some kind of background music. And yeah. A lot of times you're not even aware of the background music in the elevator. Sure. And then all of a sudden some, some song comes on or, or you hear a melody and it captures your attention. Hmm. And I think that's what being an ordinary mystic is all about, that God is in the background of our lives at all times, Mm. no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing. And I think every now and then, as we grow and as we work on our openness to God's grace, all of a sudden we begin to catch, we begin to hear the divine music that's always playing in the background of our lives. Or another way of saying it, we begin to catch or we begin to feel the electricity in the air. You don't live like that 24-7, but I think that there are times when we're more open to that. And those, that's what's becoming an ordinary mystic is all about. It's about growing in this awareness, this sensitivity um, to God's presence hmm. in our lives. You know, can, can I just, you know, this coming Sunday in my Roman Catholic tradition, this coming Sunday, uh, the gospel is from the gospel of Luke chapter 18. And it's that really strange parable that I just find a little bit odd. Sure. It, it begins chapter 18 of the gospel of Luke, and it's the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. Hmm. And Luke says that Jesus tells us this parable about the need to pray always and not lose heart. And then Jesus goes on and says that there was this unjust judge uh, who didn't who neither feared God nor man and there was this nagging widow yep. who kept demanding justice <laughs> from the judge and finally the judge caved in and said this woman is going to wear me out I'm going <laughs> to simply give her what she wants and unfortunately a lot of people have a tendency to think when they think about that parable and because Luke tells us it's a parable about the need to pray always and not lose heart it almost gives this idea that we have to arm twist God. We have Mm -hmm. to cajole God. We have to keep nagging God in order for us to get what we want. Yeah, you're right. Let me offer you, and I don't think that's the image of of Abba that Jesus presented us with. So Mm -hmm. I like to say, let's take another look at that parable. How about this? How about if I'm the unjust judge and God is the divine widow, And every day of my life, God is coming into my life in small ways and in big ways, asking something of me that only I can give. And so I do need to pray always and not lose heart. I need to pray always because hopefully my prayer will sensitize me to God, the divine widow, and the many different ways that God comes into my life. And I think that's what ordinary mysticism is all about. It's mm. just having that openness and that heightened awareness to letting God be God and realizing that God's going to show up yeah. in all kinds of strange, amazing, and inconvenient ways. Yeah. Isn't that so funny? Because uh, I had an, I had a situation the other day where I felt like this happened, and as as bizarre as it is, it happened in the grocery store in the fruit and vegetable section, mm. and it just hit me the 
this sense of beauty and color and flavor and and all these things are growing out of the same soil but they've got different purposes and they seed differently and they work together and they you know sometimes sometimes the flavors mesh together and sometimes they create this dissonance that's not very mm-hmm. pleasant but but it was just kind of entering into like this the earth keeps providing for us and it's i, I think it's an example of the provision of god in our lives that he mm. yeah and it just it was a really I mean, I would sense maybe maybe a mystical experience of just just being overwhelmed in the ordinary, caught completely off guard as I was going to pick up a bag of celery. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, I heard I once heard a Jewish rabbi, and I just loved the image and the way he talked about it. And he was holding an apple, hmm. and the Jewish rabbi said, "You know, every time I see an apple, I just want to fall on my knees in adoration because an apple makes me aware that God, in His love, has literally." pushed this apple Mm. through this tree to (laughs) fall into my hands. And so it really is a great image of the providence of God and how God is always working in our lives as he pushes up the corn, as he pushes fruits out of the tree. (laughs) This is how God provides for us. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? You know, Mm. and it ties into something that I first read a while back from uh, Francis Schaeffer's son, Frank, in a book he wrote called Addicted to Mediocrity. And then there's a guy out of Oregon named John Crowder, who's the new mystics. Uh, and and you actually wrote about it in your book. And it was this, this concept that you cannot divide the sacred and the secular. And for oh, some yes. reason, the church has done a really good job of, of, of not only saying there are differences, but then also providing kind of mediocre alternatives to what they would consider secular, and it and it comes across typically pretty, pretty weak. Yeah, we we live we we really do. We live this kind of schizophrenic life or this dualistic life yep. where we have a tendency to think that God is up there in whatever whatever we call heaven, the sacred, yeah. and then we are down here in this stuff that we call secular. But I think. This is what this is a great insight that Christians bring to the table because the Christian insight is God is not imprisoned in the sacred. By mm. virtue of the fact that he takes on flesh in the incarnation in the person of Jesus, that that becomes a symbol and a sacrament that for all of us yep. that we all bear. Let me let me use this word. We all bear God dust inside of us. So we're Hmm. made in the image and likeness of God, or we are a word that was deliberately spoken by God. And and so I think this notion, and and, and I think it's, it's so, it's so ingrained in our Western culture that there is a strong separation between the sacred and the secular. And isn't it interesting that the more you come to know what we call primitive tribes, yep. for primitive people, everything is sacred. You know, you talk to a Native American and you will see, you will get a whole new appreciation of just how sacred the whole world, yep. the created world is. And so I think we, we, this is what, what this is what all of what it means to be an ordinary mystic, to be able to 
deepen that, I'm going to say it again, that deepen <laughs> that awareness, that sensitivity that God is everywhere. I think that's such a great premise to move forward in life. Like, you know, it's, it's not like you go to certain places to find him. He's there. He's speaking. He's showing himself. He's revealing himself. I mean, Scripture talks about that as well. Yeah, One of the yeah. things that was surprising in your book um, that, that really hit me was the idea about um, cracks in the soul and how a majority of our sins tend to come from those cracks. I'm just wondering if you could speak into this. I know it's kind of a... It's a pivot moment in this conversation, but um, some of the other questions I'd love to, to talk with you about kind of get into some of that that upbringing and how to fix that. And so maybe you could speak into those cracks and what. Yeah. Okay. So so what happens is what we experienced in our childhood we bring to our adulthood. Mm. So always be aware that what happened in childhood does not stay in childhood. You <laughs> this bring isn't it Vegas. Into, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you bring it with you. Yeah. And, and I think what happens is what you lacked in your childhood or what you think you lacked in your childhood because mm. perception forms reality. Yep. So what you lacked in your childhood or what you think you lack in your childhood in the adult becomes what I call one or more of the four ego obsessions. And those four ego obsessions are self-concern, self-image, self-gratification, and self-preservation. So mm. give you, let me just give you an example. For instance, if you, if you thought that in your childhood, you were not loved enough, even if your parents showered you with love, but your perception was you never got enough love, mm. then typically in the adult, that becomes an obsession with self-gratification. I'm always looking for love in all the wrong places. Sure. I'm always wanting to feel good. Yep. Or if I, if in my childhood, I picked up the, the notion that I'm not good enough. Well, then in my adulthood, that's going to feed the obsession, the crack, what I call the cracks in the soul, the, the obsession with my self-image. And mm. so I'm going to be constantly focused on my self-image. And so what happens is when, when you begin to, and I'm going to use this, this word deliberately, okay. when you begin to befriend your sins and really listen to them, you'll discover that your sins are neon arrows pointing to the crack in the soul. And that's wow. why you and I end up committing the same sins over, over and, and over, over and yeah. over and over and over again, yeah. because we're all, we're, we're the operating system in our life tends to be the ego with its four ego obsessions. And so the way we need, one of the great ways to overcome the ego and its obsession is I, I in, the, in the book, I have a whole chapter called Jesus the Electrician, because I like to think of Jesus as somebody who really rewires our thinking. Yeah. Remember what Paul says in the letter to the Philippians. Paul says, put on the mind of Christ. Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind in Romans. And so that the idea is that by changing how I think about myself and my life, I can gradually pull the plug on the ego obsessions because hmm. thoughts 
lead to desires, and those desires feed my ego obsessions, which then gets played out into action. So by changing my thinking, I can change my desires, which pulls the plug on the ego obsessions, which then has a consequence in how I live. Hmm. And so I think this is the wisdom of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, because in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you look at the Beatitudes, which begin in chapter 5, if you read the Beatitudes and then you continue on in chapter 6 and chapter 7, Jesus is basically systematically destroying the ego with its ego obsessions. And Mm. so he's trying to rewire our thinking. And so this is where, you know, the spiritual practice, for instance, of praying with scripture can be so helpful because it's through through praying with scripture that I can rewire my thinking that, you know, that I bring with me based upon my childhood deficiency. Well, and it's beautiful, too, because I, I, I believe I pulled this next line from Jesus the Electrician, where you said, you mentioned that being mindful of that deficiency of our upbringing is one way to open ourselves to the present moment where God invites us into a deeper relationship and a repentance yeah. and conversion. What does that look like played out? Oh, so I, so I, I think in, in a very practical way, it, it would be, it would be, for instance, like, let's say I am, I am aware that. I never got enough love as a child. And so I I enter adulthood being one of these needy, clinging people, desperate for affirmation, Mm -hmm. desperate for affection. And so as I begin to learn and and read about Jesus's teachings, I gradually become aware of the fact that, you know, maybe I need to forgive my parents and and, and Hmm. by forgiving my parents, that begins the healing process of that lack of love that I think I never got enough of in my childhood. And, And so by working, by working with Jesus, teachings, I can, and and being really honest and getting beneath the sin to find out where the crack in my soul occurs, that's where I can then allow God's grace to come in to minister to me and then call me to conversion. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, there was another element to the book that I think this ties in perfectly, but Something that just blew my mind as I was reading was this concept of the the three areas of forgiveness, like the the three <sighs> ways of forgiving God, forgiving myself, and forgiving others. Can can you just spend a minute or two on on what it looks like to forgive God and myself and others? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Because I think you know, so often times, most of us think, "What do you mean? I have to, I can't be angry at, at God. I I can't." But I think you know, we 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 all know people, and maybe we've even even experienced it in our own lives, where we've walked away from God, you know, shaking a fist in the sky, blaming yeah. God for something, you know, for something that we believe that God has done. And so part of part of the whole challenge of, uh, of forgiving God is, first of all, just to come to the awareness of saying, 
I'm angry yeah. at God. And so that in itself is, 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 is the beginning. Yep. And then as I, as I continue to work with that, I begin to say to myself, you know, I, I put myself into the presence of God and I just learn to surrender mm-hmm. and accept. And so I breathe in surrender and I breathe out acceptance. Mm. Uh, Oh, we use the prayer of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. And so I have to, I have to, I may, I maintain that God connection by reminding myself that I'll never understand God's action in the world. (laughs) You know, God is, God is this mystery of unconditional love at the heart of the universe. And when we try, when we try to understand or analyze God, we end up short circusing our brains. You know, we, we end up electrocuting ourselves Mm. and so to, to forgive God is all about living with the awareness that I've got to believe that God is in charge here. And I got to believe that this is somehow or another part of God's great dream for, uh, uh, for the yeah. world and for me. And then there are times when I have to, you know, forgive myself when I, when I find myself doing something really stupid. And so I talk in the book about what I call CPR and each of those letter stands for one thing. C, the C stands for confess. Mm. In other words, let the cat out of the bag, spill the beans and and admit it to someone because the minute you can confess something to another person, a trusted friend, a spouse, all of a sudden, this secret no longer holds power over you. As my friend AA always liked to say, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. Mm. And and yet, even after we've confessed it to someone, our tendency is always wanting to go and to revisit the scene of the crime. (laughs) And so, in other words, we want to regurgitate what we did. And that's where the P of CPR comes, uh, comes into play. And that is... I press the stop button. In other words, I be I can, it's not fair for me to judge myself today, to judge something that I did in the past based upon my wisdom yep. today. And so a, a diet of regurgitated memories goes nowhere. Yeah. And so I learned to stop I press that stop button whenever I find myself wanting to return to the scene of the crime. And then the R of CPR simply means to relax, to cut yourself some slack and to realize that, you know, if God wanted us to be perfect, he would have made us computers. (laughs) (laughs) And and unfortunately, we're not computers. And, And so God has given us this wonderful gift of free will. And uh, sometimes we just make a mistake with that free will. And so we learned we learn to celebrate the mercy of God and we learn to forgive ourselves. Yeah. And, and then, you know, when it comes to forgiving others, well, that's always the great challenge. Sure. But, but as I mentioned in the book, forgiving, forgiving God, forgiving ourselves and forgiving other people, it's always a process. But I think we begin the process by reminding ourselves that forgiveness is a decision. Hmm. 
it's an act of the will. It's not, it's not a feeling. Yep. You know, if I wait, if I wait until I feel I should forgive you, Eve, <laughs> good well, luck. That feeling ain't never going to yeah. come. You know, so you begin, you begin with simply reminding yourself, I am choosing forgiveness. Mm. And I constantly remind myself of that. And that becomes part of a lifelong process. I learned to forgive. I learned to pray for my yep. enemy because I have found in my own life, as I struggled with trying to forgive my father for committing suicide, mm. I came to the, I came to the great insight that simply by praying for my father helped me to get to that place of forgiving yes. him for the ridiculous thing he decided to do when I was 13 years old. So, you know, that, that, that's a whole other kind of issue. And it, it, you know, it's always good to remember when you, when you uh, talk about forgiving other people, you know, forgiveness sets a prisoner free. Mm -hmm. And that prisoner is me, Amen, yeah. you know, that I hold the key to my own freedom. Yeah. My enemy, the betrayer, they've moved on with their yeah. life. They're doing just fine. And yet here I am still getting my underwear tied up in a knot, <laughs> making my blood pressure go up. Every time I see them, I try to avoid yep. them. And so in effect, I'm still giving them power over myself. And so forgive, forgiving the enemy, forgiving the betrayer is the beginning of my own freedom. Yeah, it's healing there. You know, and and I, th and I think there's such beauty to what you're saying because, you know, the concept with forgiving God for me has always been one of, you know, you respect him. He is like, he's more like a judge. He's not a father. Yeah. And recently it's yeah. been like, no, he can handle it. And in fact, I, I tend to look at the story of, of Jacob wrestling with God. I feel like God invites the wrestle. And I feel like that's actually a spiritual discipline that we never talk about. And I've, I've kind of been trying to formulate this. And it's enshrined in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms. Yeah. You know, the prayer of lament. The prayer of lament is a legitimate prayer. Why, O oh Lord, have you abandoned yeah. us? My God, my God, why have you abandoned <laughs> us? You know, so the prayer of lament the, is really another way, another expression that we, when we are angry with God, we come out yep. shooting. And I think, and as you just said so beautifully, I think God is big enough to Take it. Yeah, you know? I think he can handle it. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so it's just important to remember that the the prayer of lament is a legitimate prayer that has been prayed for thousands of years, and it's enshrined in the Book of Psalms. And, and the other thing that you said that was just really it was like a it's just kind of like this water on my soul was was stop beating yourself up for something you've done in the past. For wisdom that you have today. Like I know myself, I know many others that just carry so much shame and guilt over, I wish I had done this differently, or I wish I hadn't made right. this decision. But but hindsight is 2020. And and so why beat ourselves right. up for something that was years ago done? Uh based off of this kind of awareness now of what we have. We can't hold ourselves, we can't hold our history to our present knowledge. You know what I mean? 
Exactly. You know, you know, I, another way of saying it is this, that when, when I, when I find myself kind of zero in, zeroing in on some of the stupid sins I've committed, say 10 or 15 yep. years ago, rather than beat myself up with guilt, I just laugh at myself <laughs> and I say, look at how far I've yeah. come. Look at what God's grace has done that I can now look at that past sin that I did and say, God, that was really stupid out there. <laughs> and, and you know, and, and, and it, it, so it, it becomes a testimony of God's grace working in my yeah. life. That look at how far I've come. Remember, remember the old, there was that old cigarette commercial that used to say, you've come a long way, baby. <laughs> and, you know, there's some, there's some truth to that, that when we find ourselves focusing in on the past, always remember that it, it can be a wonderful testimony yeah. of how you've opened yourself up to the grace of God in your life. Well, it's funny, is even as you were just talking, a, a, some, a concept hit me was, you know, Judgment Day was always kind of this, we're going to look back, and I was even told God's going to show all your sins to the world, and and I, and I almost wonder if it's going to be more of a laugh fest of us of us looking back and, and, and being in the presence of God laughing at at the at the stupid decisions we made when right you know what i mean yeah, yeah. yeah well, i think so i think so and, and i you know and i think this is this is what spiritual growth and spiritual formation and spiritual progress is all about yeah. that we we learn and we grow and, and in that process as we look on on onto our past life in that process of spiritual growth, we come to see the areas where maybe we got tricked into darkness. Yep. Or maybe we deliberately did something, but God is so understanding yes. and merciful. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I was, uh, I recently had a guy, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Brian Zond, but he's a, uh, Oh yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So uh-huh. Zond's become one of my, one of my favorites. And, um, oh, wow. and I just had him out here in Tacoma and he, he, he made a comment that was really fascinating. And he said, in the West, we have always viewed God as a, like, we are the sinner and we need a judge. Like, we need we need somebody to take our place. And he said, and typically in the Eastern Church, Jesus, less less of a scapegoat. It was more like, no, we're just, we're really sick and we need a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we tend to view the, you know, the eternal wrath and punishment in a very legal sense, when that's actually a very foreign concept to half of the world you know it was, it, they, they view more as like no we need a healer we need somebody to fix us we're not terrible you know we're not terrible human beings who god's just ready to stack up our sins and then throw the blood of jesus on it but right but, but we're broken we're, we're broken and, and we need a doctor to come fix us and that's why you know in the in the gospels jesus is oftentimes referred to as a soter a savior mm-hmm. but that word soter has a medical kind of a feel to it so it's more like a healer mm-hmm. and, and so that speaks exactly to what you're saying yeah. and don't you remember jesus himself said i have not come to i have come for the sick i have come for the sinner yep. so it's this whole idea that he comes to heal heal us and he doesn't necessarily come to judge us. Exactly. But you're right. In the West, for some strange reason, we never picked up on that. Nope. And we've got the same Bible that they got in the East, <laughs> you know. But it's really unfortunate that we've missed out so much yeah, on that. Absolutely. Okay, just a few more questions because I know we don't have a ton of time, but one of the things that I I would love for you to unpack from the book that 
blew my mind was the concept of praying uh, from the neck up versus the neck down. And you mm. you talk about how often we treat prayer as like a mental activity. But in the book, you argue uh, that the neck down prayer includes like a heavy heart, uh, the pain in your gut, legs so weary that you can't move forward. And you, you mentioned that Jesus often prayed from the from the neck down. And I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a bit. Yeah, so so I I mean to put it to put it in um in a in a very practical way. I always say to people, pray from where you are and not from where you think you should be. Hmm. In other words, if you if you're feeling sad, well pray from your sadness. You know, pray from where you are and not from where you think you should be because I think for so many of us we go to God in prayer and we tend to we tend to think of it like a Sunday worship service mm. that when the lights go up and the music starts, you know, the curtain rises, <laughs> there we are, we're tap dancing for Jesus. Yeah. And that's really inauthentic. But the more, the more, the, the challenge in any kind of prayer is to be transparent, just as, you know, as Jesus was, yeah. you know, when he, he feels compassion, there were times when he was angry, there were times when he was, he grieved and he cried at the death of his friend Lazarus, he, he, he prayed from his love. And so we pray from our feelings. And mm. so pray from where you are and not from where you think you should be because that helps to promote a real transparent authentic prayer life and don't get caught into what we oftentimes do at the sunday worship service and that is we tap dance for jesus <laughs> you know we raise our hands yeah. we sing hallelujah and we say all the stuff yeah. and yet inside it's all a sham yeah yeah, God does desire, and that's what I think part of the humanness of reading through the Psalms and and mm. Ecclesiastes too has has now become my favorite book of just there's not the fluff. It's it's you know God desires that honest relationship. It's like yeah, it's like I've, I used to have a friend whose parents were married, and I knew it wasn't a good marriage, but on on the surface it felt perfect. But they were so formal; they didn't know each other. And I think God's calling us into a more intimate relationship with himself, which which requires right. honesty and vulnerability and transparency. And 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 he already knows kind of what we're feeling. So why are we dancing around it like trying to hide? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And when you when you say when you say that, you know, God is calling us to a deeper relationship. Let me just Go back to what I said towards the very beginning of our interview. That's how I describe grace. Mm. Grace is God's ardent longing and enthusiastic invitation to allow me to let him in a little bit deeper in my life. Yeah. And that's what living as a mystic is all about. Oh, that's so beautiful. Okay, so what would you tell, like, next steps for somebody who's listening to the show uh, like, where would you guide them if they if they are thinking like I, I kind of want to figure out how do I move there? Is there is there uh, obviously we'll we'll put a link to your book on there, and I think that's a great first step for people who haven't read it yet. Are there other authors they should be looking at? Is there a what, well, what do you can, think? Can I even go in a whole different direction? Do it, and that is because it's something that 
Um, it has always been in my Roman Catholic tradition, but I notice now it's also becoming quite popular, both in mainstream Protestantism and also in the evangelical world. And that is get yourself a spiritual director. Okay. Because by meeting on a regular basis with a spiritual director, you can, it, it, it's kind of a, 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 a way of keeping yourself honest in your relationship with Jesus. And it, it's a great little way to uh, be held accountable, to keep your feet to the fire. And it's a great little way, a, a good spiritual director doesn't conduct your life like an orchestra conductor. A good spiritual director is constantly directing your attention. Mm. That's why he's called a director. He's uh, directing your attention to the one and only spiritual director that there is in your life, and that's the Holy Spirit. And yeah. if people if people say, well, okay, maybe I want to give that a shot, but where do I go? How do I find a spiritual director? There is a great website, www.sdiworld.org. So that's S-D-I-W-O-R-L-D.org. That's the website of Spiritual Directors International. Okay. When you go to that website, you click on the tab that says Seek and Find. And it, it'll bring up a, a short little questionnaire of about 10 questions, your zip code, um, what do you, what, 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 does it make any difference if, if the person is a man or a woman, it, does it make any difference what spirit, what spiritual denomination he belongs to, you fill all that in, you press enter. And then on the left-hand side of your computer, this is a free resource, wow, by the way. that's amazing. The left-hand side of your computer, there will appear the names and the contact numbers of trained spiritual directors who have registered with Spiritual Directors International. Huh. So it's a great little website. So cool. And they, they judge it all by, you know, by your zip code. And then they'll ask you, how far are you willing to drive sure. outside your zip code? It's a great little resource. Resource. Oh, that's so but cool! I, and it'll tell you also what denomination the uh, the person is, and so if that if that's a big you know, so for some people that might raise and that, that's an issue. Sure. Well, you'll be able to tell because the name, contact information, and the spirit and and their denomination. But you know, spiritual direction is becoming more and more and more popular yep. now, and it's just this great way to help keep ourselves honest and accountable as we try to open our ourselves up to this longing and invitation of God. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, one last question for you. And and it's a question I love to ask, but every guest hates it because it puts them on the on the spot. Um uh, but I I always love to ask, let's just say that that you were handed a piece of paper that said you have 30 seconds left to live. What would be your your going advice? What would be the last thing that you would encourage people in? If you had one last thing to say. Oh, if I, when I ask, I have, I have what, 30 seconds? Yeah, you got 30 seconds. Ah, <laughs> uh, so what I would say would be the very thing that I would say to myself, and that is, it's been a great ride, surrender, let go, hmm. because you have no idea of the joy, the peace, and the love that's waiting for you at the end of this hallway. Oh, that's beautiful. 
<laughs> hey, thank you. I, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us. Like, oh, what a great thank guest. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. How do you not leave that conversation happy and feeling refreshed and energized and like you got some new perspectives? I mean, Alvaro's just such a happy, chipper guy. I, I want to have, I wish I could have gone on for another four or five hours, but, you know, they cut us off at some point. Again, if you haven't read his book, it's called Becoming an Ordinary Mystic, and it's by Albert Haas. Um, and uh, I hope you pick it up because, like I said, I read quite a bit, and this was one that cut through a lot of the noisy books that I had read. And so really appreciated that. Hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.